the Mojo Radio Show. We scour the planet to find the biggest names in health, creativity, wellness, strategy, brand, performance, management, and more. Turn this up. This is going to be crazy. This is Jason Overcome Redman. Hey, I'm Dave Acosta. Hi, this is Cal Newport, author of Deep Work. G'day, this is Ryan Park. I'm Batman. This is Ivan Davies from my town. I'm Andrea Burke from the Canadian National Women's Rugby Team. I'm Lucas Fickendee. This is Tate Fletcher, Cage Fighter. This is the Mojo Radio Show. Or I'll be coming to see you. Then we ask them the big questions. Oh, man, this is such a great question. You've actually landed right on the mark. That's a, another really good question. It's great talking to some clever dudes, frankly. I've gone probably a little bit more in-depth with you than, uh, than I have in the book. I've done, like, 500 interviews, but nobody asked me about this. <laughs> oh, wow. And sometimes we talk about darts. There we go. Can I tell you, Dina, Gary's favourite sport is darts. How athletic is that? I think it's uh, interesting that it's your favourite, but I won't be judgmental. (laughs) Look, it's the only sport that I know of where a prerequisite is a pint of beer and a cigarette. Come on, let's be honest. The Mojo Radio Show. We don't take ourselves too seriously. So you try throwing half a dozen darts in a row and just see how you go, Uh, my friend. But we hope you will. Welcome. I got my book. To the Mojo Radio Show. Hey, everybody, and welcome to the show. Lola, if you please. I'm on it. Mate, that's a band called Framing the Red. It's kind of like a country rock crossover band. Yeah. And I reckon it sounds a bit Dead Daisies or I was thinking back to our Triple M days, a bit of Black Crows or Leonard Skinner. Yeah. Do you know the first thing that springs to mind for me? Lola, can you play Jet, Are You Gonna Be My Girl? I said, are you gonna be my girl? That's where I went. That's another kicking song. (laughs) Anyway, any hoodly, I just heard that song on the weekend whilst I was out on the tractor and thought, that's actually, I've never heard of the band before. Mm, But what's what's interesting, the reason I I bring it up is because it's one of the things that I do love about Spotify in that it gives you a chance to discover music you've never heard before where Mm. back in the day before we had Things like Spotify, you those songs would never be heard because the radio stations wouldn't play them and they'd oh, be obscure totally. unless you went to a pub gig somewhere and went, oh, I don't know who these guys are, what the heck. It, it is. It's, it's a whole new world for music. In fact, I know sometimes you bemoan the jazz that's playing in the studio when you come in every morning, but I discovered jazz through Spotify. Um, I was yeah. just wanting something chilled out one Saturday morning and, and decided to play a bit of Miles Davis and haven't looked back. I think people are down on technology, but I don't think technology is the enemy. I think it's our own discipline with how we use it. Any the how is Rocktober looking? Oh, man, we are spectacular. I, it's going to be a big one. And some of the interviews you're talking about, wow. Come. 
Rocktober. Coming soon to the Mojo Radio Show. So a special welcome to all our supporters on Patreon. You are the people who keep the wheels greased and it means the absolute world to us. Chris, Paul and Joe all come on board this week. To the, they've got the all-access areas to the back of the bus, um, and this little baby is on its way to you. The Mojo Radio Show has been keeping this under lock and key. Explosive Hits 2019. It's a priceless collection of mojo changing hits with Noel Razor Smith. Can use the things you learn in the criminal life in the straight line. Amy Moran. You have something like 65,000 to 70,000 thoughts a day. A lot of them are going to be negative. A lot of them are filled with self-doubt. Explosive Hits 2019. 22 glittering stars with Tate Fletcher. Stop lying to yourself. That's what I would say first of all. You've got to stop lying. Ivor Davies, Maria Gronberg, Simon Marshall, and classic Karek Ashley. Because most people, they're living their life like there's no ramification to it. Think of the worst case scenario, and you go, that's it, I'm done. Explosive Hits 2019 with Dave Acosta. Now you're recognizing that being more aware is actually rewarding in a good way to you. Explosive Hits 2019. It's a pure gold collection. A bucket load of our greatest hits. And it's waiting for you on the Mojo Radio Show Patreon page. Out now from KTEL. All right, onto the show. Remarkable fact, go. Robbo's Remarkable Facts. It's about time. Let's go. Uh, let's set the scene. Lola. I'm listening. Can you play Black Dog by Led Zeppelin, please? Hey, hey, mama said the way you move Gonna make you sweat, gonna make you groove Any ideas? Got any any inkling whatsoever? Black Dog is normally associated with depression. No, well, here we go. Here's the thing. It's actually about record sales. Did you know for the first time in the last 12 months, album sales, as in LP vinyl album sales, have actually outsold CDs? For the first time since 1991, album sales, vinyl album sales, have actually outsold CDs. They made $224 million or 8.6 million units in the last 12 months. So why Led Zeppelin? Because they are actually the highest selling vinyl album sales in those statistics. So uh, everything old is new again. Rock on, but it's a zip. That's right. <laughs> Remarkable fact, the University of Oxford has published in the journal Brain that there is a genetic variant between left and right-handed people. The first time, now take this as it is, they reckon that left-handedness is found in 10% of the population. And what's interesting about this is that the genetic variant they reckon helps left-handed people have better verbal skills than right-handed people. Really? So they look at the brain scans of 10,000 people and found that left-handed people had better association with language, which to me means that left-handers get to speak much better because I'm a left-hander. <laughs> 
Well, and don't forget my statistic from a few weeks ago too that there's a bunch of left-handed people that die from trying to use right-handed equipment too, so you've still got to be careful. The Mojo Radio Show. So our guest this week is Dove Barron, one of Inc. Magazine's top 100 leadership speakers. He's been an independent leadership advisor to the United Nations, which in itself is a lot of cred. And he's the host of a podcast called Leadership and Loyalty. He's been seen on Oprah, Ellen, CNN, Fox, CBS, Huffington Post, Larry King, The New York Times, The Washington Post, Forbes, Wall Street Journal, not a bad little resume. And soon he can add the Mojo Radio Show to his resume. (laughs) Now, what's fascinating about this guy is he, as you'll hear, he didn't fit in as a kid. He was born in the ghetto in Northern England and he was surrounded by gangs, alcohol, addiction and violence. And then today... He works with companies all over the globe, helping develop a purpose-driven culture and helping develop leadership to lead that endeavor. So Dov is the best-selling author of several books, and thankfully he is here today. Dov, welcome to the Mojo Radio Show. Thank you. It's a pleasure to be here. I'm happy to uh, share this time with you guys. When people meet you for the first time and ask you what you do, how do you like to reply? (laughs) How do I like to reply or how do I reply? Like <laughs> your own freaking business. No, I'm kidding. <laughs> um, <laughs> uh, so, no, what I actually, it depends on how well uh, I'm introduced to that person, meaning if there's somebody who is introduced to me by somebody who knows me, I will often give my uh, somewhat cryptic but nonetheless very true answer, which is I'm a mechanic for the soul. Um, but uh, on the surface, if people don't know me, then I'll tell them that what I am is a leadership consultant and speaker um, because that is what I do. On the on the corporate part, Dov, I'm interested in this. Is Gallup run a global workplace survey each year? And mm-hmm. for the last, I don't know, decade or so, the figures have been around 24, 26% of people in the corporate world today are what they call actively engaged. 60% or thereabouts are just going through the motions. They go to work, do their job, they go home. And yet there's 16 odd percent who are actively disengaged, who actually don't want to be there and they want everybody else to know they don't want to be there. Why, why is it that we only have one in four people in pretty much any company globally that actually sure. love what they do? Why? What's your observation of that? Well, this is actually one of my areas of expertise. As I think you know, I wrote a book called Fiercely Loyal, which was specifically addressing that problem. That there's a global crisis with the lack of not only loyalty, but as you said, uh, disengagement. The numbers are, as you said, tragic and here's what's very interesting about it as a general overall so you talked about uh, disengaged and actively disengaged which are different actively disengaged that are people who are actually trying to set your business on fire but uh and not in a good way uh but what i mean is that um if you look at that the overall numbers are in this early 70 plus percent now here's what's interesting it's about 74 percent but 10 years ago the number of disengaged individuals was about 70%. It's not gone down, it's gone up over the last 10 years. Now, here's what's interesting. 
that the industry has spent about very close to $1 trillion trying to fix that problem. And it's not gone down, it's gone up. So what's the challenge is exactly your question. And the answer is this, emotion. Emotion is always more important than logic. Write it down, tattoo it on your brain, do whatever you need to do. Emotion is more important than logic. You can pay, logically, you can pay people more money. That will make them stay. No, it won't. Logically, you can be better than anybody else. You can be more innovative than anybody else, and that will make them stay. No, it won't. What will make them stay is if they have an emotional bond to you as the leader and to you as the organization and to you as the culture. It's the emotional bond that determines the engagement. What I, what I want to know, Dov, is maybe a, a practical example of somebody over the last couple of years that you've taken through this exercise. And, and I'll set this up. You said on LinkedIn, a purpose-focused organization is not just built around a clearly rock-solid emotional purpose. It's built around leaders who eat, sleep, and breathe that purpose. Tell mm-hmm. me about, you don't have to name a name or give it a fictitious name, but give me an example of somebody in a business that's not the sexy type businesses, but someone who is a rock solid leader who eats, sleeps and breathes a purpose, who's done it, and that we can frame around a tangible example that a guy who listens who might run an asbestos removal company or a guy who runs a trucking company or someone who runs a kindergarten. Yeah, I'll give you an example from one of the ones you actually stated, which is actually... um uh, partners in a trucking company uh, here in Western Canada, a, a large trucking company. Uh, I can think of another one in a pipe fitting company. Um, and, you know, initially I'm always like, what, really? These people want to bring us in? I'm always a bit surprised. <laughs> um, you know, because these are, the, these are meat and potatoes guys. These are, these are you know, uh, these are the dirty fingernails individuals who are still CEOs. Uh, of multi, you know, hundreds of millions of dollars companies um, who get underneath the truck, you know, who will get into, go, go into the, the, the pipes and dig around and do stuff. And so we were, we were talking about, of course, they all, both of these companies I'm thinking of had great mission statements, but they, they knew something was missing and they were definitely having a problem with loyalty. And so we were brought in and, the um, in the pipe fitting company, the lead guy there, the, the the he was the original owner, now one of three partners, real sort of old school blue collar type guy. Grew up through the ranks, been a you know been a pipe guy all his life, and everything I heard about him was not good. And I was honestly, I'm not looking forward to meeting the guy, and I was going to meet him when the other partners had brought me in to work with the executive team. So I thought, oh, you know, I better go in with the armor on, on this one. Honestly, he was phenomenal. Because he, I was able to approach him at his level about what mattered to him, to elicit from him what mattered to him. Why did he start this company? What was it really about? It was, a, and, and so everybody should know, you start a business for, there are some basic primary needs. So you start a business because you want to create more money so that you can provide a better lifestyle for the people you love. That's usually the, the reasons that people start a business. But there's an undercurrent, which is the purpose of the business. And that is the difference you want to make 
And that's not some horse shit mission statement stuff that you put out there. We want to be the most innovative. You know, we're, you know, we're the best in customer service. Nobody gives a crap about that. Nobody cares. What is the actual emotional connection to that? And what he got within the first 30 minutes of us working together, and this is in a two-day training, what he got in the first 30 minutes was the realization of why he went into the business. If you'd have asked him as we started the meeting, are you an environmentalist? He would have said, absolutely not. Within 30 minutes, he was an environmentalist. He understood that he was about building communities and that he cared about the environments of those communities. He And he literally began to eat, sleep, breathe that. And business has gone up 200% in the last six months because of that work. That's, that's such a great example of where I think companies are missing missing this this is the, the the piece of the chain i think that's missing when you look around a lot of organizations dorvin i guess the question then is with that particular guy is it the leader or the owner's job to create and find that purpose so that's a great question so the answer is yes yes for the individual <laughs> um you cannot so a, a corporate purpose when we go in and do the work we will we will engage, of course, with the, the owner or the partners or the president, but we want to work with the executive team, and that's what we do. So everybody who's in that C-suite, so, I mean, obviously, if it's an entrepreneurial organization, there's only two, three people, but they're still doing $100 million or $50 million or whatever, that's great. However, what we're talking about here is an executive board. So we put the executive team in the room. Day one is about each of them finding their purpose as individuals. And we do that. And it's it's vulnerable. It, it's, it's challenging. So l- l- please don't mistake this and think, oh, well, this is just a, a, a process we walk through and everybody goes through the same process and, and everybody gets the same result. No, no, no. If you started reading um, Simon Sinek's book, Start With Why?, and I asked my clients that, have you still read the book? And we're them to say, yes. Did you do your why? Yes. And I said, what's the name of the book? And they go, start with why? I go, fabulous. What's the first word? And they go, start. And I go, that's right. It's not the end. It's the beginning. This work is about the why of your why. That has to start with you, not the company. Your why tied to the why of the organization that your company becomes the way of fulfilling this desire that you've likely had your entire life but never realized it. And a purpose unfulfilled becomes dark. We actually do fulfill it but in a very dark manner. You write and talk about, and you've just mentioned it now on the show, the word vulnerability. Mm -hmm. And you've said and write a lot about true leaders show true vulnerability. And I'll get on to you in a second, but in terms of vulnerability, how do I know that I am being vulnerable? Because I think the observation is a lot of people think they are, but they don't have you (laughs) in their corner as a coach going, no, 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 dig. I'm not, you're not there yet. Keep digging. How do I know when I found it? If you're, if you're not in my corner, how do I know? That is a great question. Uh, and I really want everybody to to actually think about what you just said because it's important for everybody to grasp. Because you know, vulnerability is the, the new cool, right? It's the new cool. And and the problem is that people think they're being vulnerable when they're not. And they say, Well, I wouldn't normally say this in a meeting, and I say this, and I say, Well, is that your vulnerability? And they'll go, Yeah. And I go, 
on a scale of one to 10, what was the level of discomfort? And they go, well, probably a three. That's not vulnerable. It is vulnerable, but it's not the vulnerability we're talking about. So vulnerability is this. And so I want everybody to take a pen and write this down. It is discerning what it is you're going to reveal at the same time revealing that which is uncomfortable. So if, if it's not uncomfortable, it's not true vulnerability, but you must have the emotional intelligence, the emotional um, awareness to know what is appropriate and what is inappropriate. And oftentimes people go, well, this is not vulnerable, so I'll reveal that, which is way too much. So the example I like to give is Tim Cook, who, of course, you probably know is the leader of, of Apple. Tim Cook, several years ago, came out and said he was gay. That was an act of great vulnerability in the business world at that time. He didn't tell you the antics he likes to do in the bedroom. That would have been lacking discernment. He, you don't need to know that. So we reveal something that was probably very uncomfortable for him to reveal into the business world. But he didn't reveal the details that don't need to be there. And without the right guidance, most people fail there. They reveal way too much. It's out of context and people don't get it. Can I ask you a question about your own personal vulnerability? No. <laughs> of yeah, yeah. Of course, I write about it. Don't talk about it. I write about it. Just, exactly. just, just take me. I, I just, this is something I'm very curious about with you in your own self. One of the, mm -hmm. the things that you say a lot is, I'm here to serve. And I'm here to serve others. I heard you say that the number one person you serve is look after yourself. Then you went through the second person, which was your spirit or the, the greater good. And you went through it, Dov, until the fifth, the fifth person you serve, the fifth person on the line was your wife. And your wife had to know there were four above her. And I go, well, that is so contrary to what the majority mm -hmm. of the population would say because they'd say my partner, my children, but yours is kind of fifth and sixth. Just reconcile that for me in terms of, and I'm fascinated by it, reconcile sure. how that goes through your mind. Well, um, thanks for bringing this up because it were, um, my wife and I, when we first fell in love and, and I was really seriously thinking this could be the person I'll spend the rest of my life with, who incidentally I just celebrated my 21st anniversary with. Um, and uh, I said, you know, I was telling her, I think you're going to be the person I want to spend the rest of my life with. And she was pretty excited. And I said, but you got to know that you'll never be number one. And she's like, okay, well, what's number one? And I said, the creative force of the universe. And she goes, what do you mean? I said, well, some people call it God. Okay. She goes, well, you know, I can live with being second to God. I said, no, no, you're not second. And she's like, oh, okay. What's second? And I said, the reason that, that the creative force put me here, the purpose I'm here to fulfill. Oh, okay. Uh, third, I guess. I said, sorry, no. And she goes, what's third? And I said, well, first is the creative force of the universe. Second is, is the purpose. Uh, second, actually, is my relationship with the creative force of the universe. Third is uh, the purpose that I was put here. 
through that creative force of the universe. So she goes, am I fourth then? I go, no. She goes, what's fourth? I said, fourth is me. She goes, why? I said, because if I don't take care of myself, how you won't like me. I won't be able to be there for you. If I'm not honoring me, I'm not honoring you. So before I can do, before I can even honor this relationship, I have to honor myself. If I'm feeling um, drained, if I'm feeling emotionally pulled, if I'm feeling torn in different directions, if I'm not true to myself, if I'm not following my purpose, if I'm not aligned with the creative force of the universe, I'm I, I'm going to be a bit of a dick. I'm not going to be the kind of person you want to spend your life with. And and I said, so you're going to be fifth on the list. And she's like, oh, okay. And in a workshop once, somebody said, how did you feel about that? She goes, I was pissed. I don't want to be fifth. And they said, what about now? And she said, I, she says, I was married before with somebody who told me I was first. She goes, I will take fifth every time because Dove is completely present with me. That's what it's about. That's gold. That's gold. Thank you. And you're right, it's completely contradictory to what we're all trained to believe. We're all trained to believe, put everybody else first, and what you will end up with is a mis- being a miserable bastard. I know, because I tried it. I tried to make everybody else first, and I just became a nasty grommet. I wasn't a good person. I was, an, I was a person who was nice, N-I-C-E, neurotic, insecure, controlling my emotions. I was nice. N- nice guys are liars. Nice guys are assholes. They don't actually care about you. They're just pretending to be nice. A great leader is somebody who can say no because they need to take care of themselves, not because they can't take care, not because they don't want to take care of you, but because they want to take care of you. And the only way to do that is to fill their own tank first. We've all heard the analogy, put your own mask on first. There's a story you tell where you did put your own mask on first and you were married you had a two-year-old daughter and you left in fact you actually moved countries you've now reconciled with that two-year-old who's now 40 something and you have grandchildren what i'd like to know is the first conversation you had with your daughter to reconcile and explain why you left her as a two-year-old. What did you say? How did you explain the fact that you had left or walked out as a dad? So um, if I answered that in that context, it would be completely out of context. And I don't want to do that. I want to make sure it stays in context. So uh, I'm going to sort of reframe the the question. And then if you have more questions, of course, you can ask me anything you want. Um, But the truth of the matter is... um, I didn't leave my daughter. I left a marriage that wasn't working. Um, My daughter was collateral damage to that, and that was very, very sad for me. And that when I left initially, I didn't leave the country initially, but I actually saw more of my daughter than I did when I lived there because I was actually able to be present with her. Um, So I actually had a took, I was supposed to have her every other weekend. I had her every weekend because I wanted to be with her and I loved my time with her. It was wonderful. Um, But I had, when I met my, uh, my daughter's mom, I had said, listen, here's what you need to know about me. I want to own businesses. I want to travel and I want to study. And she was very excited by that because I was born in a ghetto. And so saying this to somebody who was also born in a ghetto, it was like, who is this guy? He's an alien, you know, and I wanted this big adventure. And she thought it was 
wonderful idea until it was not an idea, until it was a reality. And I found that I got jobs in the United States. I got a job in the Bahamas. I got a job on the ships. I got all these on the cruise ships. I got all these things. And she was having none of it. I wanted to go away and take this course and study down in London and all those kinds of things. She was having none of that. And the marriage was sucking large. Um, there were some other things that went on that were not to do with me, that were to do with her, and I'm not going to go into those because I don't want to speak badly of her. Um, and so eventually the marriage broke down. I went away, um, as you said, I left the country, I moved uh, to another country, moved to another continent, actually. Um, I didn't stop having communication with my daughter. Um, I did still have communication. So it wasn't that there was no communication. And eventually, um, I left there and moved to Australia. And when I moved to Australia, my daughter, by that time, was nine. And she came and stayed with me for several months and you know, and she asked me, why did you and mom split up? And I told her, I told her that, you know, we wanted different things. And I, you know, and I never left her, but I left her mom, um, which her mom hated me for, for many, many years. And then uh, as we, as my daughter became an adult, um, a young teen, she came and lived with me in Canada for six months uh, when she was 14. She didn't want to go back. She wanted to stay. And then eventually, you know, from there, we, we had a very, regular relationship but i saw some changes in her personality and the way she was living that eventually brought our relationship to another head that actually uh caused us to have a separation this time by her choice for another three years now mm. we're very close again as you said so i don't know if that's answered your question uh no it's I, interesting I want to make sure I, it's in I, context i think a lot of us struggle with these sorts of situations Dove. so i think mm. it's it's good hearing people talk through these difficult in, in, and look, be able to reflect upon it, particularly as someone who's mm -hmm. in leadership. And the reason I think that these stories are valuable for all of us is you said and it, it, with your work, and you are considered to be a world leader in leadership, you said to lead others, we must first lead ourselves. And I think we hear a lot of conversation about leading others I think this this sort of conversation is really powerful for us to reflect upon our own world and say, well, how are we leading ourselves? Because we have divorce rates which are out of control. We have massive mm -hmm. health issues, relationship issues. We have depression, anxiety growing. Are you are you seeing and observing the fact that we are not taking that the leadership we hear and see is about leading others? Are we not taking responsibility for ourselves? That's a good question. I, I think that very often uh, it's much easier to be focused on others. I mean, you have to look at this. Let's, I just want everybody to grasp this for a moment. You live in the most comparative time in history. There was a time when you wandered around your village and you looked at the person over there who was, who was doing better than you and you went, I gotta do better than Charlie. Now your village is global. You have social media at every possible turn. We are looking at the world through comparative lenses. We're always deciding that somebody's doing better than us. And so the external focus is massive. And the problem with that is that it is a bar that can never be reached. So the first place of self-leadership is to actually look in, not out. And that's a very difficult thing to do in this world that we live in today because everything is comparative. So the first thing to do is to stop and say, hold on a second. You know, I, I posted a video on LinkedIn this week and I talked about upgrades 
my wife and I were away on, on this um, this road trip together, and she had ordered this camper van. We were going to go on a road trip. And she had particularly picked a certain kind. And when we got there, they were kind enough to give us an upgrade. But the upgrade was not an upgrade for her. It was a much bigger vehicle. It was more plush. It had more fancy bells and whistles. But it was also seven feet bigger, which is considerably larger and a lot wider, which meant that she couldn't drive it. She didn't feel comfortable driving it. So the upgrade was a downgrade. But we take the upgrade, and we did, we take the upgrade because we think by comparative lenses that that's going to be better. You, we have to stop and say, what's true, not better? What's true for me? What matters to me? Most people are, are trying to lead others, but they haven't bothered to stop and say, what matters most to me? What are your values? Let me ask you this question right now. Take out a pen and paper and write down the five most important things to you in life. Write them down. The most important thing in life to me is, write it down. And you don't have to write five, write 20 if you like, but boil it down to your last five. And then when you get to the last five, See if you can break those down and give them a hierarchy. And then when you've done the hierarchy, uh, pause this recording and come back when you've done it. But then come back and, and do this. Ask yourself, if you say that number one on your list is family, let's say you put that, right? Family. Okay, great. Fantastic. How much time do you spend with them? And then you say, oh, well, you know, I spend this amount of time. Okay, how much time are you present during that time? That's a whole different story. Oh, okay. What's number two on your list? You say health. Fantastic. How much time do you spend in the gym? Well, I, d I don't go anymore. Oh, do you work out in any other way? No. Well, health is not really important. You see, because it is your commitment to action that proves your level of importance. So maybe what's really true is that your level of importance is looking at the world and saying, I'm not as good as them, and comparatively looking at the world. Maybe what's really important to you is Netflix. Maybe what's really important to you is your computer. Where is your primary relationships? Because that's actually showing you where your values are. That's leading self, and you can't lead self without self-awareness. You've got to look within. I want to try and tie a few threads together here. So I'm going to take an off-ramp off the highway just for a second. I'll just get Robert to take the bus off the highway. So about six months ago, we interviewed a professor from the University of California called Professor Charlene Nemeth, and for 20 years she's been doing a thesis on dissension. And she wrote a book called No, The Power of Disagreement in a World that Just Wants to Get Along. Where I'm going with this is that, you know, you've mentioned that we live in a world of comparison. We live in a world where we are trying to keep up with the Joneses, post photos that make us look like our life is in the best possible shape. We're doing good. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. With all you're saying, mate, with this conversation, is there a role, do we almost have to take a role of dissension in our own world? Because you you seem to be a guy who doesn't like the typical rules. Like you are a guy who's very happy to challenge every rule, to come to your own authentic belief and then stick by it. Is there a mm -hmm. role for dissension, do you think? Do we have to sort of start to dissent against the majority to think what's true for me? I think it's imperative. So, and I'll give you, I'll give you more than I think, because who gives a crap what I think? 
Here's the psychological <laughs> research. Right? I mean, here's the psychological research. This is this is not my opinion. This is you can go do this. So individuation is a natural state of human beings, but so is tribalism. So what do I mean by that? Let me explain it to you in in the simplest possible form. If you, are you a father? Is that a question? Are you for a me? mother? No. Anybody, right? Are you a father? <laughs> are you a mother? If you are, you remember when you first had your child. And you remember that you fell madly in love with that child. It was the greatest thing that ever happened to you. And the fact that this crying, sleeping, shitting, vomiting thing that was with you, that was completely dependent on you, and you were still madly in love with it, is pretty spectacular. And then at about one and a half to two, between one and a half, 18 months and 30 months, around that time frame, your child's favorite word is, do you have any idea what it might be? It's no. We call that the terrible twos. Because in the first stage of, of our life, we believe that we are, we, the world and us are one. It's actually the whole uh, path of enlightenment that we're trying to get back to is we believe that we're in the world of one. As we develop a little bit out of that in after the first nine months, then we come into the stage of feeling that we are our, uh, our direct environment, meaning mom and dad are us. And then we realize that they're not. And so we start to say no. So dad says, you know, time for bed. No. Mom says time to get up. No. Would you like a cookie? No, but I'll still take it. So it's it's this it's called individuation. It's dissension from I'm not you. Can you and I'm going to ask you, I'm asking you directly right now. <clears throat> so have you any idea when the second phase of individuation might show up? Hmm. First uh, stage is terrible twos. No, I'm I'm not you. Second stage? What would you guess? Maybe around Five, where they start no. to reconcile the world or start to have an opinion. Well, they do, but they're, they're still gonna they're still gonna forego that opinion for yours. Mom and dad are still gonna know best. But there's a point, and we can all remember being there when your parents are idiots, and that's called teenagers. Mm. Right? Everybody's everybody who's got a teenager knows that you you are an idiot when you have a teenager. <laughs> it's just part of, and so at that point. That teenager, as a point of differentiation, is saying, hold on a second, I'm not your beliefs. Now, they may return to those beliefs later on, but that, so it's, I'm not you, is it, too, but I'm not your beliefs, is in your teenage years. The problem is, we live in a society that says it's not okay to do that. We don't applaud rebellion, we actually punish rebellion, and because we punish rebellion, it gets repressed within us. So we go out into the world and we start saying yes to everything. We don't want to create a distension, we don't want any dissonance with others, we become terrified of conflict. But you will never find who you are or what matters most to you until you can find a place to say, this is what I stand for. My question to you as you listen to this is, what is the hill you're willing to die on? If you don't know who, who it is you're fighting against, if you don't know what it is you're fighting for, you're not a leader. You're at best a manager. And you might be in the process of that, trying to t create new followers because you've got this wishy-washy idea and that you don't want to offend anybody. So you're trying to get some followers around that, but you won't get them. 
as my mate Larry Wingert says, if he doesn't get a couple of death threats a week, he knows he's no, doesn't, no longer relevant. You've got to make a stand. And, you, and this is not about just going against somebody. It's about knowing why you're against something. It's knowing why you're fighting for something. It's being emotionally deeply connected to that. That's what makes the point. So, yes, we have to learn the power of no. I actually have an article on LinkedIn entitled that where I turned away a client. And, you know, I'm not cheap to work with as, as, a, as a coach. And this guy wanted to work with me. And I said, no. And, I, and he was, he, the guy was blown away that I would say no because it wasn't a match for my value system. I would not support him in the best way that he needs. Because what he wanted was me supporting by buying a smoke machine and blowing up his skirt, and that's not what I do. You, you've you got very definitive thoughts about leadership, the world, how leaders should operate. How is, is there a, a particular ideal of leadership that you've changed your mind about in the last couple of years? Is there something you've gone, I used to believe that, However, my view has changed. I think I now believe this. Uh, not in the last few years, but definitely that is true, yes. Um, uh, in 1988, uh, November of 1988, a friend of mine, um, who I just moved to Canada, I'd been living here for less than a year, and a friend of mine said, oh, you've got to come to Seattle and see this guy speak. And I'm like, why? Oh, he says some of the things you say. Now, the fact of the matter is that this guy and I, we work very differently, but I definitely have a lot of respect for him. But I said, okay, who is it? And he said, it's Tony Robbins. And I said, never heard of him. I just moved there from Perth. So I'm like, never heard of him. So he said, come see him. So I went to Seattle and I went to see him. And at the end of the event, um, Tony, back in those days, there was like 200 people in the room, and Tony said, if you want to talk to me, you can stay at the end. And I made sure I was last in line. You can't do that with Tony anymore, but I stood there, and I made sure I was last in line because I didn't want to be interrupted. And uh, as I stood there, Tony said, how did you enjoy it? And I said, it was amazing. It was fantastic. And he said, oh, that's great. And he said, how do you feel? And I said, pissed off. And Tony had a big smile on his face. He was very gracious. And he said, that's interesting. Tell me why. And I said, you made $11 million last year, which would be a poor year for Tony now. But then I said, you had made $11 million last year, and I'm standing here in a secondhand jacket, and I'm at least as good as you. And Tony, just big grin on his face. You know, if you know what Tony Robbins looked like, he's a massive guy you know, with a smile that, that is an advertisement for Colgate. Um, you know, and he just has this big grin on his face and he says, who's on your team? And I said, uh, I don't know what you mean. I haven't played soccer since I was a kid. And he goes, no, no, no. Who's on your team? I said, I don't know what you mean. He said, you see that brochure you're holding? I said, yeah. He said, do you think that I printed it? And I said, of course not. He said, do you think that I designed it? I said, maybe. And he goes, no. He goes, the ticket that you got to come in, do you think I designed that? I said, no. He said, the chairs that were put out, do you think I put those out? I said, no. He goes, did I collect your ticket coming in? I said, no. He said, who's on your team? And I said, I don't understand. And he goes, my team members did that. Who's on your team? He said, you'll never be a leader until you stop trying to be a lone wolf. And I went, oh. 
Now, by the way, it only took me about five years to get that lesson <laughs> after Tony told me because nice guy, a little bit slow sometimes. Um, <laughs> and so that was the turning point for me is that leadership is not the lone wolf. It, and if you're trying to do it as a lone wolf, you will fail miserably. It's about asking for help. Be here to serve, but allow others to serve you. What year was that? Is that 1988? That was it. Yeah, no, uh, November 1988. Because soon after that, if I take you only a couple of years later, you are free climbing. You had a really bad fall and you got pretty badly banged up. What I'm curious about is you said that even having that fall, it didn't change your life because a lot of people would do that, go through this moment of near dying and it would change their life. But for you, it didn't change your life, but you said it amplified where you were at that time. When you fall from a mountain, get banged up like that, pretty much die and come back and it doesn't change. What did it amplify? My ego. <laughs> it definitely amplified my ego. There's no doubt about that. So uh, as, you, as you're quite correct, and, and it was 1990, June 1990, I was free climbing with a buddy, which is climbing without ropes for people who don't know. And at about 12 stories up, 12, 120 feet, I reached for a rock that dislodged a bigger rock that, bam, hit me in the face and sent me hurtling down onto the boulders below where I was smashed to pieces. And yes, I did die. I actually died about five times. I've had uh, somewhere in the range of 10 reconstructive surgeries now. And, you know, people often say, well, that must have changed your life. And, and the fact of the matter is it didn't. Not at that time. It, it made me, you know, even more of that lone wolf. You know, when people would say to me, how are you doing? With my jaw wired closed, I'd say, I'm great. I'm coming back. But quietly on my own, when I'd go home, I would be in a very dark, depressed, and full of rage state. I was pissed off at God. I was pissed off at everybody. You know, I was pissed off at the mountain. I mean, there was nothing I wasn't fed up of. And um, it wasn't until about – I really was feeling like I'm never going to be able to come back. I'm never going to be happy again. And I was doing very well at that point. And I'd – been from some nights out with my mates and always sort of sat around a bit miserable and felt, oh, it's never going to come back. And on a particular night, I'd gone out with my mates. I had a great night out and I'd actually laughed and I thought, okay, I'm, you know, I'm going to come back. This is great. This is wonderful. And uh, as I came in the door, feeling in a really good mood, I opened the door and the light from the outside uh, crossed into the kitchen and I could see across the floor garbage festooned everywhere. There was kitty litter, there was empty packets, cans, coffee grinds, and it smelled pretty bad. And I was pissed off. I was went from feeling joyous to right back into the rage. And I went looking for the culprit and really wanted to cause physical harm and knew exactly who the culprit was, got into the living room, and there was the culprit all curled up and comfortable on the couch. And I lifted my hand to strike and about halfway down stopped because that's not who I am. And instead of hitting my cat, I put my hand underneath the cat to pick it up and realized the cat was cold and I held it in my arms and realized the cat was dead. And I fell to my knees and began to weep. 
and it didn't take me long to realize that I wasn't crying for the death of the cat. I was crying for the death of my ego. I was crying for the death of a life that I'd had and that that life was over. And that was the moment that changed my life. You see, these dramatic events, <clears throat> they are, in fact, pivotal moments in our lives. But they're not, they're not choice points. They're not the point where everything changes. That happens only later. And usually when things can become the same again. I had a client many years ago who had a massive heart attack, and I went to see him in the hospital, triple bypass, all the stuff, and I'm talking to him as he's prepping for surgery, and he's like, yeah, I've been doing it all wrong. I've been working 80 hours. I've missed so much with my family. This has got to change, and this, is, this has definitely changed me. I'm reevaluating my life, and I'm like, that's great. I saw him. He, he stopped coming to see me. It was weird. I thought, okay, he's in recovery, it's okay. And I, and I probably saw him three, four months later after he'd recovered. And I, and I said, how are you going? He goes, good. I said, uh, what's happening? He goes, well, you know me, I'm, I'm working 80 hours, blah, blah, blah. And I said, I thought you told me it changed your life. He goes, yeah, but this is just who I am. No, it's not. That's the choice he was making. So that, that pivotal moment doesn't change us. It's the choice point when every – see, he, he got his strength back and went, oh, well, I can go back and do what I was doing only better. We start convincing ourselves, but it's absolute nonsense. Things don't happen to you. They happen for you to reconcile yourself, to come into connection with yourself, to pay attention to what it is you need to pay attention to. And if you don't, guess what? Something will happen again. See, what most people don't realize is when I fell, that wasn't my first fall. That was my fourth fall. The first of which was in, off Bluff Knoll in Western Australia, where I fell 70 feet off a shale mountain. How, how do we stay the course? Because I think that that guy's story is we get swept up into this world of comparison and mm. that's what you do as an executive. We have this choice point. How does mm -hmm. someone stay the course? It, again, it's a great question. And the, the answer is understand this, it will get worse before it gets better. So I'm going to tell you the cycle right now so you can understand it. So you're in pain, whatever the pain is, whether that's falling off a mountain, whether that's a heart attack, whether that's a horrible diagnosis, maybe it's a horrible diagnosis of somebody you love, maybe it's a divorce, maybe it's a bankruptcy, but whatever it is, it is horribly painful. And at that point, you likely say, I got to change. Fantastic. Wonderful. That's what we call a point of impetus, right? There's the impetus to do something. And you start to change, you start to do something, and it gets much better. You're like, oh my goodness, this is so much better. I'm so happy that I chose to make this change. And then, so it goes pain, much better. Next up, you won't like this one, much worse. The next step is much worse because now it's like, hold on a second, and I'm in a new set of pain. This is horrible. Maybe I'll be better to go back over there. Maybe I'm better going back to working 80 hours a week. Maybe I'm better going back to that terrible relationship I was in. Maybe I'm better doing X, Y, or Z that just sucked, but I'm going to do it. That's the much worse. But if you keep going through much worse, you get to a different place, and it's called this, much different. It's not much better. It's not much worse. It's much different. 
And you can only get to that place with an internal journey. That place is only a result of turning your back on the old world and saying, okay, I've got to find me. I got to find my soul. I got to find out what it is that really drives me. The work that we do, that I do, and my company do, and the people I work with do, is we go and find your primary drivers so that we can elicit your purpose. The primary drivers are the things that have been driving you since you were a little kid. You just didn't know. But when you get in touch with those, your life transforms. It becomes something completely different. When I fell off that mountain, there was a point when I was in dark place. After, after the cat had died and, I was, and my mate said to me, you know, are you, you going to speak again? And I said, I'm done with speaking. I'm done with writing. I'm done with working with people. And then about two and a half years later, he saw me speaking somewhere. And he goes, I thought you weren't going. To. I said, I'm not. And he goes, what do you mean? You're not. I said, he said, I just saw you speak. I said, I'm not. And he goes, what do you mean you're not? I just saw you speak. I said, no, no. I'm not saying I'm not doing that. It's where I'm doing it from. It's a completely different place. Where I was working from before, even on the surface, may look the same, but what drives me is completely, totally different than what drove me before. As we start to wrap this up, mate, without being too deep, there is a, a process you speak of. Let's call it a process, a tool, a system mm-hmm. about the eulogy. And yes. what I'd be interested in hearing or you explaining is the eulogy. I'd like to know what your eulogy is. And particularly, I'd like to know what's being said at the back of the room. So this is part of a process that we teach um, and is actually is featured in, in my book, One Red Thread. And so if you want to go through it, you can go through it by actually getting that book on Amazon, One Red Thread. Um, however, um, the way to think of it is this. Many people have done the, the eulogy exercise. They, they get to write a eulogy of what will happen when they die and what people will say. <clears throat> but if you've ever been to a funeral, um, you know that the job of the person delivering a eulogy is to dry clean your life. And, and a very good friend of mine invited me to go to a funeral of his dad. I had known this guy, my friend, for some time. I had even known his dad before his dad died. His dad was not a nice guy. His dad was, in nice terms, an ass. And I'm really being nice. He had been a really cruel father. And um, and he, my friend, actually lived with his dad to take care of him towards the end of his life. Um, and, he's, and he was horrible to him. Um, the dad was horrible to my friend. Um, so when he died, my friend said, would you come to the funeral? I was like, no, I have no desire to do that. And he said, well, I would really like your support. And I said, okay, I'll come, but I'm not sitting at the front of the room. I'm sitting at the back because if he gets too much, I'm going to leave. And he's like, cool, I'll sit at the back with you. And at the front of the room, somebody delivered a eulogy for this man. And the person delivering the eulogy talked about how he was such a wonderful guy because he had one time paid somebody's rent and never asked for the money back. That was the defining moment of this man's life because the job of the person delivering the eulogy is to dry clean your life. So your exercise here is to write your eulogy as if somebody's dry cleaned your life. What would you ideally want them to say about you? Ideally. So I'll give you the example from me. I'll be totally open and transparent. So in mine, it will be Dove was a uh, courageous man. 
he lived his life on purpose and assisted others in living their lives on purpose so that they could live deeply fulfilling, impactful lives that were purpose-driven. That's kind of the, the, the rough of it. You know, it's pretty clean. There's nothing in there that's even iffy. It's all pretty shiny and bright. You want to do that for yours, right? You know, and don't make it too long. Make it reasonably short. But that's the eulogy. It's dry clean. As my friend and I sat in the back of the room after hearing this story about how this guy's life had been dry cleaned, I was sitting next to my friend, and obviously he knew who his dad really was, and there were some people in the back of the room who also knew who he was. And I sat there and I listened to the whispers about what a cruel bastard he was, how mean he was, how poorly he treated my friend. We heard the whispers. The whispers are never the same as the eulogy. The whispers may not be true about you, but they're probably what you fear. So what I want you now to do is an exercise, is the next part of that exercise, is to write down the whispers. What it is they might say if it was not dry cleaned. What is it they might say, even if it's not true, but you fear that it might be. So when I wrote mine down, I and by the way, I spent a long time writing my whispers doing the exercise. The eulogy was easy. The whispers were not. But when I wrote the whispers, it was like, oh, okay. I had to look at the dark parts of myself. And there were things I could write down, but mostly I could. there was a part of my head, my ego could argue with them. And so how you will know that your whispers are true is it will feel like a punch in the gut. You won't want to write it. That's how you know it's real. So I told you what was said at the front of the room for my eulogy. At the back of the room, the whispers are, Dove. Now, I'll tell you, I'm going to pause here for a moment. Because when I wrote this originally, it didn't work. Because I wrote, Dove was a coward. And my ego was like, well, that's, you know, nobody believes that. And I don't even believe that. I've All kinds of representations of how I've, been a, how I've been a courageous person in my life, how I've done things that scared the bejesus out of me, and I did them anyway. That didn't work until I put the words in my grandchildren's mouths. So I pictured my grandchildren sitting at the back of the room, and it only worked when I added the expletive. Dove was an effing coward. And it was my grandchildren saying it. See, I'm already getting choked. And as a, if I heard my grandchildren saying, Dove was an effing goward, that's the punch in the gut. That's the whispers. And by having both your eulogy and your whispers, you get to understand what it is you're aspiring to, that's your eulogy, and what it is you're moving away from because human beings are driven by two forces, pain and pleasure. The pain is the whispers. I never want my grandchildren to be able to say that. So every day I have to wake up and be courageous, even when they don't want to be, even when nobody will know I will. Your eulogy and your whispers. It's gold. Thank you, sir. I, I, I'm going to bring this to a head because I'm very conscious of the time you have given us today. We're very, very grateful. I want to read you something that ties this whole eulogy thing together in a typical Mojo radio show type of way. And I just want to know, mm-hmm. I just want to know what this means to you because I've I've kind of heard you refer to this without saying it. So I I don't know whether this is one of your favorite sayings or not, but it's certainly one of ours on the show. 
Life should not be a journey to the grave with the intention of arriving safely in a pretty and well-preserved body, but rather to skid in broadside in a cloud of smoke, thoroughly used up, totally worn out, and loudly proclaiming, wow, what a ride, Hunter S. Thompson. What does that, what does that mean to you? <sighs> um, <laughs> for, me, for me, it means living your life with, a, with courage, with curiosity, and with, it's more than courage. It's with the balls to state why you're here. It's with the commitment to understand that they may not approve of you. They, and by the way, they might be the people who you love the most. They may be your family. They may turn their back on you. They may ridicule you. But if you don't stand for that, you will die a quiet death. And a quiet death is a miserable death. I do want to go peacefully in my sleep, but I want to go peacefully in my sleep knowing I gave everything I've got that I never held back on telling the people I love that I love them, on seeing people at the depth of their soul, on loving people who seemed unlovable, on having compassion for people who don't seem to deserve it, on being in a place where I can help others tap into deep greatness that lives within them. There is deep greatness within you. And when you live from a place of your deep greatness, you will go skidding to the finish line. That's what it means to me. Potentially, Robbo, one of the best closers we've ever had to a show. <laughs> if not, I think the best. It's pretty close. It's up there. <laughs> thank you. Mate, thank you so much for your time. I really, I've got so much more stuff that I was going to get to for the show. Uh but I'm very conscious of the time we allocated for this. Uh, to, to wrap this up, people will want to find out more about you, your work, your writing and stuff. Where's the hub? Where's the go-to place for you? Thank you for asking. Uh, you can find out more about me by going to fullmontyleadership.com. Full Monty, like, like the movie, fullmontyleadership.com. And if you go fullmontyleadership.com forward slash gift, G-I-F-T, uh, guess what? You can probably get one of my ebooks there, uh, absolutely free, um, that you'd normally have to buy on uh, on Amazon. You might even be able to get one red thread right now too. So get yourself over there. You can find out all about me there. You can find out about my podcast, my videos. Uh, there's over 600 videos on YouTube. Um, there's over 600 articles on the on that uh, site as well. Anything you want to know about me, you can find there. Well, you said at the head of the show you were a mechanic for the soul. I think you've been mechanic mm -hmm. for the mojo today, mate. It's been uh, a great, and I, I've got to say, it's. Um, I heard you say on a podcast some time back to get in contact with you because you wanted to hear from those people. I did that, and you did respond, and you're here today. So the thing we love is people who put the rubber on the road and 
do what they say they're going to do because many don't. So thank you for your time, mate. It's been a great uh, privilege having you on the show. Lovely to meet you. And I, th- I really appreciate your vulnerability, your honesty, and all the wisdom you share with us today, mate. It was, uh, it was tops. It was my absolute pleasure and honor. Thank you, Darren. Thank you, Gary. I appreciate both of you and appreciate what you're doing. And again, I want to I want to say to everybody listening, please, please don't just listen to this show. You know, that information is the hole in the donut. Transformation is the application of that information. So listen to it. Go on on to wherever you're tuning into podcasts, rate, review, and subscribe to this show. Let other people know about the show. Share the show with others. Write to these guys. Write to me. Tell us what you got out of the show and what you're going to do with it because that's what matters most. I'm honored and grateful to be invited to be on the show, and I thank you for your time and your investment uh, and your engagement. Thank you all so much. I'm Anna Devenna. I'm also known as the Sleep Muse. I help people get a great night's sleep. And often when people are struggling with sleep, I suggest that they listen to the Mojo Radio Show. And when they do, they fall asleep instantly. Do you know, the last couple of months, there has been this underlying theme. And we go through these trends, don't we? But this one I find very curious from the military right through to the stuff we discussed today about being purpose-driven, mission-driven, actually making it happen, execution. It's, It's funny how we pick up on these threads and whether it's just the content that people are out there speaking and so you get this flow on from it. But I thought that um, Dolph's stuff today fitted really nicely. Some of the stuff from Black Rifle Coffee, and I don't know it's just a, it's just a good it's a it's a good thread for us to pull upon. I reckon. Yeah, I, I think you're taking the mission thing a bit too far, though. That bowl of Mission Corn Chips you've got in front of you is gigantic. Hello, our friends at Mission Corn Chips. The Mojo Radio Show. Pop quiz, hot shot. All right, pop quiz, hot shot. This is now. This is a, I think this is a tough one. Hit me. Name three songs that use bagpipes. Uh, it's a long way to the top, yeah, obviously. Easy one. Uh, yeah, that's that's a given. Uh, bagpipes. Mm. Oh, um, Copperhead Road, Steve Earle. Yes, sir. That's two. Easy one. Uh, yep. Wow. One more. Uses bagpipes. Nah. Got me. So the reason I bring it up is I was at a spring fair yesterday and I watched the Papers, the pipe band, the pipe <laughs> right. band playing with the drummers, which I love. It always stirs emotions in me. And there were people in tears. And I thought, man, bagpipes. And I started thinking, ACDC, Copperhead Road. You too actually did a track called Tomorrow. Oh, uh, yeah, they did too. Back in the day. And they used bagpipes. But here's one that our overseas listeners won't know. But it surprised me when I looked it up. But a great Australian pub band called The Church had a song called Under the Milky Way and they played bagpipes. Is there? Yeah, it's, it's a little ways and it's about halfway through the song. But anyway, this is Enter, Enter Sandman by Metallica. Oh, no, here we go. Done right. as a bagpipe cover by uh... the goddesses of bagpipe and the snake charmer. Now, stay with me on this. Robbo, who... Could you queue up Lola to play this? But this track has had almost 15 million views on YouTube and I will put a link to it in the show notes. These two young chicks who are so rock and roll and pretty cute 
<laughs> rocking out on bagpipes to enter Sandman. Lola. Yeah, that's pretty good, but I reckon we've got to play out with the original, mate. Bagpipes don't quite cut it. Lola? We're out.
The Mojo Radio Show is produced and recorded in the basement of Voodoo Sound. For more tips and tools to get your mojo working, check us out on Facebook at The Mojo Radio Show or online at themojoradioshow.com. To help us get better and give more people the opportunity to touch up their mojo, you can now find us on Patreon. Follow the links on the front page of our website and for a coffee or two a month, you'll get regular bonus material and a copy of Explosive Hits 19, the best of the Mojo Radio Show. In the meantime, to polish your next audio production, check out voodoosound.com.au. For more about Gary, see garybirdwhistle.com. And to book me, go to andrewpeters.com. Andrew Peters speaking. See you next time.